So Linux received a Skype upgrade. I think this one is from 1995. Wow. Yay! <laughs> Jeez. So current. Yeah. I have the most recent version running. I think it's interfaces from 1995. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 61 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from sunny Pennsylvania. And just a quick reminder that uh, my other podcast, Wide Teams, Dot com is going strong lately. I've had a ton of interviews with awesome programmers working remotely and in distributed teams. So if you do that, uh, please check it out. Awesome. Okay, I'm done. We also have James Edward Gray. I'm mostly dead today, uh, very sick, so I will try to contribute between coughing. Well, if you're mostly dead, that means you're slightly alive. True. And you can, you know, if you're all dead, you have to go through their pockets and look for loose change. That's right. We're going to do another Princess Bride quote episode. <laughs> I remember that one. That was fun. Um, we also have a special guest, and that's David Larrabee. Hello. Uh, coming at you from Hotlanta. Hotlanta, huh? So how hot, get, how hot getting is hot it? down here. Uh, it's only 95. Oh, is that all? We've, yeah. been over, we've been over 100 for three days now. Really? Okay, well, um, temperate Lanta. <laughs> <laughs> you want to introduce yourself? David, for sure. those who don't know who you are? Sure. Um, I'm a, I work uh, for version one. I work in the product development team. I am the development coach, um, kind of like a tech lead, I suppose. Uh, I have been developing software for 15 years across a wide variety of industries um, and uh, mostly .NET. Uh, lately, I've been in the Ruby and JavaScript um, kind of world, so Polyglot. Um, yeah, that's about it. I do, you know, conference speaking and see me on the road occasionally. I have to ask, who's weirder, the JavaScripters or the Rubyists? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think there's a lot to like about the stuff that's happening in JavaScript, especially with Node and CommonJS and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I kind of like both communities, you know. Um, I actually kind of like the Java and .NET community as well. So I think there's, you know, something to... Weirder, I think probably Haskell people are the weird <laughs> or Erlang, you know, I don't know, you know. That's um, awesome. But weird in in my in my book is a decidedly good thing. All right, cool. Um, I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. I guess it's devchat.tv now since I'm going to be getting that up within the next week or two. Um, but yeah, if you want to check out what I'm working on, go to buildingjsonapis.com and uh, sign up for the online training that's going to be in a few weeks. All right. Well, let's jump in. Let's talk about uh, domain-driven design. Is that is that correct? Yeah, but it was it was on our calendar as just DDD, and my wife kept asking me what that is. Did you look at her and go, duh, duh, duh? <laughs> it's awesome. So, domain-driven design. Can you give us the ten thousand foot pitch, David? Sure. sure. Um, well, I think it, it's it's essentially a collection of kind of approaches and approaches could be patterns, could be um, heuristics, could be rules such as like the solid type rules um, around taking the the real value and complexity of your business logic and crunching it into a pattern that people might recognize better than DDD, 
but something uh, it's called domain model, right? So domain model being a pattern that um, was kind of popularized by Martin Fowler and his Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture book, and it's just a way of structuring um, the core value or the core logic of your application. Now, it's quite thick book and it's quite dense, so um, and it's kind of organized in the principle of there, there are a series of chapters that kind of give you a tip or approach or a pattern or a method or an example of how to um, properly construct a domain model. So I'd say kind of one one really reductionist way of putting it is that it's a Bible for creating domain models. Um, and it goes quite deep as far as how to put domain models in context with other domain models, how to um, isolate the uh, you know tips for isolating things that should go and should not go in a domain model, and I think we'll we'll, we'll kind of dig into that a little bit deeper as as our conversation goes on. But that's that's more or less how to construct a domain model is a very reductionist way um, to to put it. But I think that's a good starting point, and then we can get into some of the more subtle um, aspects. So when you say uh, Bible and big book, you're talking about the DDD book, not the Martin yeah. Fowler book. Yeah, right. So Eric Evans wrote wrote the book Domain Driven Design. He came up with the term. Um, it's it's his baby. Uh, the book is pretty old. It's uh, 2003, but it still gets quite a bit of attention. The the idea of domain driven design in the book. Um, it's a very, like I said, a very dense book. It's written in kind of Melvillean. Uh, way. I mean, I think it's well written, but I think it's very, there's a lot of information in there. Um, it's not uncommon to, to find people at this point that have read it a couple times. Uh, and I don't think it's, I don't think that's any kind of like, like fanboyism thing. I think it's just, there's so much information in the book that, you know, like you see a, a long movie, you know, it sometimes benefits you to see it twice, kind of catch um, the details. I think that's very much a phenomenon going on with this book. So Eric Evans, yeah, he's the, he's the guy um, that kind of that kind of came up with this whole approach. Um, it's one of those you know driven development things, one of those DDs, right? But I think it's a really uh, good thing for developers to check out, especially like I've kind of noticed in the Ruby community, there's a new sensitivity to object-oriented programming that I think has been present in the Java and .NET communities for for quite a while. Um, and I think that this is a big part of that pie, right? It's a big piece of that pie that that uh, the the domain driven stuff, right? So it's similar to like test driven development, like like the fast tests and the super isolation, the growing object oriented software guided by test um, approach. This is, I think, another angle of attack and a, a worthwhile thing for Ruby is to check out. So yeah. Anyway, I'm rambling, but Eric Evans is the man. Um, he's responsible in large part for this. And then there's been a lot of people that have kind of picked it up and you know taken it in new directions and started practicing some of the the guidance that he's put in there. And um, so there's a bit of a community around it. Pretty, uh, I think there's a Yahoo group or a Google. Um, I don't follow it anymore, but there's a um, pretty vibrant. There was a pretty vibrant group around it. So not having had a lot of time to dig into this, I'm a little curious, is it more of a set of prescriptions or practices or is it a set of principles that you attempt to follow? Well, there, there, he presents a pattern language and so we can start there, but I, I don't think that's the most, well, let's start with the most important things I think in DDD. The two okay. most important things are ubiquitous language. And this may be something that we take for granted, but that this is the idea that 
when we're speaking with our customers or speaking with our users, um, the terms that we're, they're using will be also reflected in the code, right? So it's about removing that impedance mismatch between um, the language that the business uses and, or the language that our user uses and what, you know, we name our classes, what we name, you know, et cetera. So that's one thing. And I think that's, you know, I think that's something we take for granted, but that's something we strive to really, as developers, look at what we're naming things and try to find the term of art, try to find, you know, really listen to what the user's saying and, you know, have that reflected in the code. So ubiquitous language is one big kind of explicit thing that he made, um, you know, that, that's in the book. Uh, the other thing is bounded context. And that's the notion that we want to focus our domain models down to the essence of what they do, right? And that it's okay to have multiple models working together, but there should be some notion of a boundary between that. We don't want them to leak in to one another. So I'm sure you guys have all seen these, you know, massive active record uh, situations, right? With tons and tons of models and they're all, it's just all coupled together and that kind of thing. That's kind of a no-no in the DDD world, right? We want to find, we don't want to see security or our little, you know, security system intermingled with our, you know, uh, shopping cart stuff. We don't necessarily want to see our shopping cart intermingled with our product catalog, right? So those would be distinct models, maybe, right? That's just an off-cuff example and typical bad example. But um, bounded context is another important notion. So now we can talk about like what goes in the model. And um, in the book is presented a pattern language uh, for constructing a domain model. So in that pattern language, you have things like we'll start with maybe the most – we'll start with a pattern that people focus on them a, a lot when they start to get into DDD. But it's one of the least important ones is the repository. A repository is just a, a type that – will let you um, retrieve things, right? So it it will let you retrieve things and will let you save things. It acts as kind of, looks like an in-memory collection. It may be backed by some kind of persistence thing. Okay, the next thing is an entity. An entity is something with an identity. Now, if we contrast this with like, uh, usually identity in a lifecycle, but we can contrast this with active record where the repository um, is implemented as kind of class methods, right? And your entity is, these are like instance methods, that's an instance, right? But they're, it's all kind of in one thing, right? Yeah, let me, let me speak to that for just a second. The, um, when I was reading yesterday uh, all this DDD stuff, um, I was listening to the ubiquitous language stuff. And you're right that Active Record's kind of designed that way, right? I mean, we do, you know, some model dot new, and we pass in some fields, and that sets it up, and then we end up calling something like, save on it, right, which maybe isn't very descriptive, like you're talking about with ubiquitous language. It might be better to have, um, you know, uh, some model dot approve or validate uh, request or whatever, you know, that, that speaks more to the domain that we're actually dealing with. And uh, I've actually begun using Active Record that way uh, you know, the last couple months or so. What I'll do is I'll just define class methods on the models. And so then... I'll have class methods for like retrieving records however I would like to retrieve them and uh, for saving some method however I would like to save it. So I would just call, you know, update request. I might pass in some parameters or whatever. It creates the model, does the save, all that inside that method. And that lets me, 
you know, basically treat active record as just like a persistence layer and not bury it with a ton of model logic. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's really great because what you're starting to do is you're starting to tease out bounded context, right? You're trying to remove like a one context is persistence, right? That is one um, aspect of what the application does. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a cross-cutting concern. Everything probably, where do objects go to sleep at night? The database, right? And so you're trying to tease that out, pull that out, and I think that's really good. So I'd ask you, James, like, do you find that your code, like in your controllers or wherever you're accessing these models, is it, are you getting that, is it becoming more expressive? Is it easier to see what goes on? Is it something that potentially you could sit down with a user and especially with a language like Ruby where once maybe they could get over the fact that dot is a message passing argument, you know, um, they wouldn't think of that, of course, that way. Um, but they could read it and it would maybe make more sense. I mean, that's the name of the game, right? Yeah, that's exactly why I've been doing it. I mean, my controllers now, instead of, you know, some model dot new and then uh, some instance dot update attributes, whatever, in an if, you know, now I can just call methods on the model that are named off of the operation that I'm actually doing there, right? And then pass in what it needs to do that. And inside the model, it, it you know, may make instances of itself and save them or whatever. Uh, but then, you know, for cross-cutting concerns or things that aren't tied to persistence, I make normal Ruby objects and, and deal with it that way. You know. So I think that's, that's exactly the kind of um, benefit that DDD tries to uh, bring to the table. Um, that uh, uh, so There are so many little nuggets, and, and a lot of them are just kind of affirmations, right? They're like, oh, yeah, I do that instinctually. I stumbled across that, but it's nice to have a name for it. It's a, you know, it's the same value as a pattern, right? Um, but then there's a lot of, for me anyway, when I picked it up, which is fairly early on, there were, there were a lot of little aha moments in there. That little, little hacks that, you know, when you add them all up, and you know, you take the, the the basic principles of ubiquitous language bounded context. Um, you get a lot more expressive code. You, you get code that's easier to maintain. You get code that's more receptive to changes. Like so, then pairing this with something like um, refactoring and TDD, you know, it, it, you get a more mutable kind of object-oriented code base. Um, so, so I, let's talk ahead. about your um, bounded context a little bit. The more I read about these. Um, and I guess I should clarify, I've just really read the, uh, the MSDN article and then, uh, that you wrote, and then uh, I, I looked through Wikipedia, and then I listened to a couple of podcasts uh, that you were on, um, and I'll put links to those in the show notes. But in the, when I hear you talking about bounded context, um, always my, my mind is drifting to SOA, and I'm wondering if that's like, a common comparison, or do you guys, do you lean toward SOA type arguments or, or setups? Or um, I think that you know, I think the notion of how a bounded context is implemented, I like to think of as distinct from the concept of bounded context. Right? Um, I I kind of like the lo-fi approach, and I think if we just have one application, which is a lot, a lot of people are just working on one app, right? And and so SOA like a Having a um, you know REST APIs behind server you know fronting services might be a bit of overkill for a lot of people. So I think in that case, you know I would look for in uh, uh, more like services. Maybe just use like a service object or or a facade um, between 
models, I think might be a better, just use an in-process class, an object, right? Between, uh, to isolate the models. I think that might be a more cost-effective lo-fi way. And you can evolve that later to some something more um, specific. So just adding some kind of abstraction, even if it's an in-memory thing, I'd advocate that way, especially as you're learning, you know, is this really a primary thing that needs its own, um, you know, infrastructure, its own API, there's going to be multiple consumers of this thing. I think that's that's where I kind of look for SOA stuff. I'm by no means an expert in that, but that would be my, my kind of gut reaction. I would, for the purposes of this conversation, let's treat bounded context as I need to, you want to try to identify where they are and you want to just kind of keep a little a little boundary behind them. One thing that goes with this is um, this notion is a pattern in the book, anti-corruption layer. And this, I'm sure people use all the time. Have you ever had to call out to a web service from an application you've developed? Chances are yes, right? Yeah. And so you typically have some kind of adapter over that web service, right? Mm-hmm. Some kind of interface that you control. Now that's very much an anti-corruption layer, right? You don't want to leak in all these calls to that external API, which might change. You want to kind of constrain that into one box. So if we have a model that needs to call another model, typically we'll have an anti-corruption layer, right? If we have a model that needs to do persistence, we'll have some kind of thin anti-corruption layer that then delegates to what needs that to the persistence layer. Right? I heard Whatever somebody recently call that a um, uh, scar call that scar tissue that you sort of build up around the uh, the external dependency. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great uh, metaphor. Because um, you wind up cutting yourself on it a few times. <laughs> so um, it, it, yeah. it strikes me that a lot of these things we're talking about are not so much new concepts. I mean, like. Um, uh, you know, you're you're talking about right now. You're talking about the boundaries of systems, and we definitely have lots of patterns for how to deal with that. You've mentioned several. You know, um, so would you say that DDD kind of took a lot of existing concepts, maybe added some of its own, or spun some of them in a little different way, or combined them, and and kind of took some of the best of the best of object-oriented programming and tried to distill it down to a related theme? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is editorial. I think that any any kind of book that is editorial, there there is there is new content generated in in the editorial, right? As far as how you stack it, how you present it. Um, and then and then there's a fair amount of new content in there, right? Um, so maybe we've been talking about stuff that is like I think ubiquitous language is a pretty novel concept. I think it's um, very, very it, much a making the implicit explicit type thing. I would say I would say we did um, small talk best practice patterns as a book club book at one time where we read that. Um, so that's an old book from the small talk days, and it definitely had a lot of patterns in there that I would say put together probably equal ubiquitous language like. Um, uh, attention revealing selector, which basically just means you know choosing a method name that that reveals what you're trying to do and hiding the stupid you know code that actually does that behind that name. Right. So I would I wouldn't say it's I mean and we've known for a long time right that naming is one of the famously hard things in computers right and and that we've always struggled to do it well. I, go ahead. It gets it gets a little it gets a little easier when you listen to the language that the business uses though. You know what I mean? I think that's one. Yeah, and, and you know, I definitely, I think a lot of this, there are traces and smells and things that, you know, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun and, you know, Ruby's what, you know, 
it, how old is it? It was in 1995 or something, you know, came out yeah, or 94. 95. Um, you know, so I mean, a lot of this stuff we're using is pretty old, but I think DDD kind of, you know, condenses it down into into a pretty good, it's not a system, it's not a systemic thing or a process by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a cache of knowledge, right? That it, brings a lot, it sure brings a lot of stuff that, that already exists, but I think it presents it in a way that is pretty enlightening, you know, for, um, sure. for specifically OO people. Now I've talked to Eric and he's like, it's not limited to OO and stuff, but the book is kind of presented in you know with java and a kind of well i guess class oriented language um so i think when i say oo i think that's how i use it right just take it for that i think you could apply a lot of these um techniques in a functional language uh or a different paradigm but yeah i mean i i, I would knock it just because it's editorial I, I think that the process no, I, no i wasn't knocking it at all i was more like saying um uh, it seems like it's standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Oh, sure, that, for sure. It's yeah. taking a lot of uh, things that we use. And my other impression, just from looking through uh, the stuff that you sent us, was that um, it seems to address things at several levels. Like, on one hand, it seems to be like a strategy guide, kind of an overall high-level strategy. But then in places, it seems to get into, like, tactics, you know, which is... Mm -hmm much more smaller focus, uh, how do we handle this little bit? Uh, seems like it, it kind of tries to build up an overall, um, you know, uh, I can't think of a good word right now, but an overall plan that, that hits at many different levels. Wouldn't you say right. that's true? Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, there's a movie I like called Objectified. It's a uh, documentary from, from the dude who did uh, Helvetica. Um, and it kind of details industrial design. And he, um, one of the people in that movie makes a point that there's something like there's hundreds of definitions for the word design, right? So I think that domain-driven design, the word de design is a um, very important thing. This is one approach to designing, right? And so I think for it, in software, there are levels of design, right? You, you could be designing the a method, right? And that's a very tactical pretty low level thing but there's a number of things that you want to take into account when designing that method you could be designing a collaboration between classes and that's a little bit higher level right and then you could be at a systemic level you could be at maybe a like architectural level I, I kind of don't like that term but a level where you're talking about major components or packages kind of working together right and so I think that there, there are kind of there's guidance and tips and advice and you know ideas about how to kind of work across those levels, and I think as developers we find ourselves kind of constantly moving up and down that stack, you know. Mm -hmm. Sure. So sure. I think the other thing I'd say just to kind of put this in context is, for me, domain-driven design has very much informed my approach to design, um, as as has test-driven development as has, you know, a number of other things, you know. So I think um, it's it's not necessarily a, a turnkey solution, and I, I just want to make that point. I think it's something that informs the way you design systems. Right. So I'm a little curious. Have you run into situations where DDD maybe isn't the best approach? Um, I Well, I, again, I don't think it's a full-on approach. Um, I think that 
I use something from DDD in pretty much everything. I think if we can look at let's let's reframe that question and say domain model versus active record because there mm-hmm. I think is is a more um, there is kind of a choice, right? Which one are you going to use? And I think active record is fine for some simple applications that are forms over data. Uh, we find that that might you know kind of break down when we start to think about more complicated systems. Uh, and I think that when you choose domain model, you, you tend to have a more complicated domain, right? More complicated business that you're working with or more complicated problem. Um, I just want to stress, though, that that's, that, that doesn't have to be a dichotomy, right? It, it doesn't have to be domain model or active record. You know, we can build domain models and then use active record as a persistence layer or something like that. I mean, you can. I mean, I think that they're I, – I do – I, I kind of see them I, – I don't see them as a – so active record, the library from Rails, yeah, I mean, you can use that as your persistence mechanism. The pattern, I do kind of see as somewhat – um, of a, a dichotomy there, uh, I hmm. think. Um, Doesn't the pattern just pretty much define how those classes map to the table? I mean, does that really say anything about how you should model your application? Um, domain model says nothing about persistence, you know? So I think they're kind of different things. Right, yeah. Whereas that's, active record says logic point. plus persistence lives together. Domain model is kind of just to oversimplify, says logic. And then there are other persistence patterns. Right, so I mean, I, 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 I guess maybe we're in the violent agreement, <laughs> perhaps. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know that. I, it's been a long time since I've read the active record pattern. I should definitely go back and read it. I don't know that it necessarily says that that the object and the persistence are the same thing. I think it defines a way to persist objects. Um, but I don't, I don't know that it, it that the pattern itself says that your logic should be tied to that same thing. I may be wrong about that, though. Yeah, but ultimately, don't we typically do that with the Active Record library? Where we I would say I would say that's a way it's commonly used. But I definitely think there's people that are pushing the boundaries and trying to get away from that. I mean, even Abdi's. Uh, you know, objects on Rails book. He takes a real, you know, kind of I would say casual approach of not going the whole way or, or anything like that. But he is in it, try, uh, you know, showing ways to break logic out of that active record trap. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I try to. I I mean, I try to start outside of active record. You know, I start very very explicitly with domain model and domain language, um, and you know, just completely ignoring. Uh, the language of Active Record, and and then I sort of add it in uh, in the background as I need it. But it is it is difficult uh, sometimes to break those ties. I mean, the the fact that I mean, just little things like the fact that you're you know if you're using it, you're descending your objects from at, from Active Record base. Um, but bigger things like uh, validations. I mean, a validation is can can very much be part of your domain model. I think. Uh, I mean, feel free yeah, to disagree, that's but a great, that's a great. But it's very much part of your domain model. But it's it, if you're going to use Active Record validations, you're you're going to be using them in you know in the Active Record way, um, in Active Record language. Um, although at least you know the they're sort of extracted out into Active Model now. But um, there are aspects of it that uh, can make it a little bit tricky to to kind of tease that out. And, and honestly, you know, something that, that kind of bothers, bothers me to this day is just the whole process of saving objects. I mean, a lot of times I feel like if we really want to talk in, in domain terms, then saving is not 
Saving isn't really something that that pops its head up in, in domain language very often. I mean, you know, you you model, um, you 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 buy a book, you don't save a purchase. But right. when you're writing the code to do that, very often saving the purchase is exactly what you is exactly what you do. And um, and it can be a little difficult to get away from that, especially when you need to change a number of models together. I mean, I've often wished that I could just do something where I change a bunch of models. And then at the end of the request cycle, something magical goes through and, and collects up all the models that have changed and persists them. Uh, and I haven't really gotten to that level yet. And I feel like sometimes I feel like Active Record is holding me back from that. You can just uh, switch to uh, Java or Donna. And uh, <laughs> so I don't know, man. I don't know if you're going to want to take that, uh, take that pill, but you can, you can think about the trade offs. Uh, <laughs> um, Next I, week, I, welcome I to think, Java Rogues. I think, like to, this, I think this actually was a good uh, discussion, though. I think what we, what we hit on here, I'm just trying to summarize and, and tell me if you don't agree, but I think that, that it is possible to, at least in some cases, separate a pattern like active record and then like your domain model concerns. But maybe what we did say in, in discussing this was that active record tends to push you toward that path a little of keeping that logic inside of it and maybe that encourages us to build apps that way. Sort of. Right. And I okay, I I I I'll agree on that point. Um I want to also make the like there's one I think really good example of the difference between domain model and active record and that is that with active record every, things things are more well recordy right you have a fine say blah 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 for every pretty much record right and uh, every record in domain model you have this thing called aggregates now this comes from domain driven design um, but in, with aggregates you have more you think about things in terms of trees right and that you have a root aggregate root. So in the case of like a customer, let's pick the typical bad example of customer orders order lines, right? In the case of like order, order lines isn't a primary, it's part of the order aggregate, right? An order has one to many order lines. In that case, you typically wouldn't see a repository for order lines. You just see it for order. And the order repository would save that whole graph. Mm -hmm. right? I, I mean, I, I think that's a different thing. Now, there's other rules that are important about aggregate that make that give you value in the in the OO space. Specifically, anything outside of order, the order aggregate, cannot hold a reference. This is kind of a heuristic guideline thing. Cannot hold a reference to one of the subs, right? So if I'm a customer, I can't hold a reference to an order line. That makes no sense, and this is why this is a bad example. But and it, there are examples where that makes a difference, and where that makes a difference is in something like coupling. Right, mm -hmm. you can you you your order would have something like amount, which would then iterate through the order lines and grab the you know sub amount or subtotal or the the you know quantity times price or whatever. Probably that'd be encapsulated in order line, but um, that notion of you would say order down amount and that you would couple to the aggregate root, but never one of the children of the aggregate. So I mean that's an example of like something that seems like kind of fairly subtle. But we we hadn't talked about persistence at all, and it, when we once we start, and typically like in the Java or .NET world, you use something like Hibernate, and you can just go create mappings right between every single object. So in in reality, you've got this this framework that handles it for you, um, but it's completely outside of your code. It's completely there's no tax on the code necessarily. There's no um, you know subclassing. There's no uh, 
there's no you know imperative stuff right there's nothing you need to really do I, I don't know if I totally agree with that I'm Java certified and I think we can call Java attacks so uh, yeah but, well, okay. <laughs> right no I'm not advocating you guys no I'm, believe me I'm I you know I love dynamic languages I I'm I'm a big you know I, I would choose that no um, I I seriously yeah. like what you're saying there about the you know how you know with Active Record it it kind of puts a blockade in the road of even thinking about aggregates, right? It, it kind of right. does put a barrier there. Let me yeah. ask you this. How does, um, uh, going back to the ubiquitous language thing, how does um, uh, DDD feel about uh, domain languages? Because in Ruby, that's a common tactic for us is to first morph our language into the language of the problem and then solve the problem, right? I think, like, so having done um, a fair amount of DSL development, I think pretty much any kind of domain-specific language that, you do, that you'll make will benefit from a strong um, conceptual model, right, underneath. So typically your DSL is a kind of veneer over some model underneath that exists. So look at like rake, you know, there's tasks, right, and there are classes that represent these things that you're just using um, kind of Ruby uh, syntax sugar to orchestrate, right? And then there's usually something that will take that and then build those things up, right? That will interpret that DSL, an interpreter that will interpret that DSL into the terms of, I said conceptual model, I meant to say semantic model. A semantic model, applying things like DDD will help harden that up, right? Does, does that, so I think most DSLs aren't just like, you don't just have a method that goes and, you know, reads it or you, you, you have, most DSLs are backed by some kind of model. Right? Yeah, abs- yeah that, absolutely. That backing model is where you would apply DDD. And I think applying some of the some of the ideas in DDD, and, and persistence is not a DDD idea, so let's just take that off. But some of them, just creating an elegant model that reflects the ubiquitous language of what you're doing, if you, if you apply some of those things, your DSL, it, it will necessarily reflect it will become better, right? You know, it'll become easier to manipulate, easier to model, e- easier to uh, kind of uh, move around, add things to, etc. So, um, are you are you a big fan of things like Cucumber because they allow us to test in the language of the domain? Um, I I at my current job we do use Cucumber. I'm a big fan of Cucumber because I if it were just Three, you know, developers kind of working on a problem. I probably wouldn't reach for Cucumber, but when it's like a whole team, and you have product managers and testers and things like that, I think it's a great way to involve that team in the process of um, kind of collaborating through like a, a, a you know an effort. Um, I do I do think that it is important. Like in our Cucumber, I'm kind of harping on: is this the language we use? Um, we do use like in the feature under the feature area. We use that opportunity to describe definitions and terms that enter the ubiquitous language. We're working in the domain of agility, so some of these things we're kind of making up. You know, what's mm-hmm. a tract epic? What's a root epic? Well, that's really our thing. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the thing with ubiquitous language. That's that's a really that's a really important that's a really great question because you see it not only in your code, but you hear it coming from everyone in the team and everyone you talk to, if you talk to customers, you hear it, you know, you should see it in your Gherkin, right? If you're using Cucumber, that kind of thing. It should be pretty consistent all the way down the line. We want to avoid developers having to become interpreters or human compilers, right? 
we're not just there to like interpret the solution that you know customers give us and then we encode that into machine language as far as they know right we're there to help them collaborate through and and understand and and we become little we become little subject matter experts as time goes on yeah and that's kind of an interesting uh, thing i've heard that view before that like our, our job is basically translators you know that we're we exist to translate between some business and and things computers can understand you know it's kind of Interesting. One out of the job, right? I mean, that that to me is like, that's an awfully like dim idea. I mean, I I think that is scary. That that is uh, not fun at all. You know, I think that's that's not a way to use a smart person. Yeah, you know? I, I I agree. You don't want to use them to cross compile English into code. Instead, what you want to do is, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said uh, you become many um, subject matter experts. And that's something that I've seen in a few of the jobs that I worked at where um, you really couldn't build what was needed unless you understood what it was doing and not just from the fundamental, um, you know, shuttling data around or whatever, but actually understood why things had to be the way they were and uh, what what was being discussed on the business end when, um, when they were talking about what they needed next. Yeah, I think I was using a more loose definition of translator, like... I wasn't meaning so much that they say it should do this, this, and this, and we just write the code with that exactly. I more meant that, you know, we say things like, oh, you can't really say that in computer speak, but instead we can, you know, do this thing, which is kind of the same thing, or how we would go about that, or, you know, maybe translator is a bad word, more like guide, right? Mm -hmm. That we're we're guiding the process into that area. No, and I think we all have our specialty. You know, I think that when we work with customers, they they kind of they kind of internalize that business, and so sometimes it can be really hard for them to verbalize because they've just well internalized. You know, they they've it's just they live it, right? So having to like um, explain that can be an impediment, right? But that's really their 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 forte is knowing how that business works. And and our, obviously as developers, our forte is knowing how we're technologists, we know how the technology works. But I think something like DDD can help smooth that continuum of how things happen. And I think most developers are really smart people that can really benefit, like thinking through maybe the way this works isn't necessarily ideal or we need to work on how this is expressed or I've got some really good questions that are going to yield a better solution, right? I think that's that's kind of, you know, I think DDD helps kind of some of the stuff in there helps smooth that continuum a little bit. You know, kind of keep it, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm wondering, do you ever like compile some kind of project glossary um, with with domain language outside of the code? Um, We kind of if it's a important term that doesn't isn't in the vernacular, um, we will use Cucumber to Mm -hmm. um, document it in in situation. Um, As far as a distinct glossary. I have worked in insurance before in a okay. pretty complicated domain, and we did have uh, like a page on our wiki where mm-hmm. we would keep some of the more complicated terms for new developers like apportionment, controversion, things like that that are um, pretty important to, to what we were developing, but not not comprehensively or as a rule. I think mm-hmm. you want it to be more of a social, cultural thing. It's in the in the um, 
it's in the language you use, back to ubiquitous language. It's in uh, the code you use. It just permeates the environment, right? right? Yeah. Now I was just thinking about projects I've been on where where it was sort of a, a learning curve where you have the this language that's that's that is permeating the code, but but you're not particularly you know it's it's not immediately obvious what uh, what those things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's um, it can be obvious like some of those words that I can't even uh, probably pronounce that you you mentioned a, a moment ago. Those are you know probably obvious cues that that as a new developer I need to go get some help. Uh, I need to go get a definition. Sometimes you see stuff though that like it seems like every pro- project has something in it called item, yeah. um, <laughs> and it means something different in every project. Oh yeah, the item, you know. The yeah. Item. Well, and, and, and then you get the other ones that are like order item because it's an item attached to an order because that's right. more descriptive. Well, um, better that yeah, than meta item, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't get me started. I I, I worked on a on a uh, system that had um, item. Item def, item ref, and item datum. Nice. Yeah. Wow. They, inv- they invented their own object system. Sweet. And, and that, item in that in, in that, that context actually meant question. And that domain was a candy store, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I have another question uh, regarding DDD. Um, since it's about ten years old now, um, and and this is stemming from a discussion. We do need to stress though that that's newer than Abdi's version of Skype. Just. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I gotta love Linux. Anyway, um, so we had a discussion on JavaScript Jabber about um, agile development, and one of the things that kind of came out was that um, even the ad hoc processes that companies follow, where they're not really well versed in agile, they they tend to reflect a lot of agile principles. And with DDD having been around for the last ten years, have you seen any of the the concepts or um, discussion points for DDD kind of creep into um, popular development practices? Sure. Actually, Eric has uh, kind of come out with something he calls whir- whirlpool, whirlpooling, which is a, um, a, a kind of a putting DDD into the context of iterative incremental development or agile. Um, and I encourage you to check that out. Uh, go to, I think it's domainlanguage.org. Uh, we could put that in the in the show notes, hopefully, but um, he he's got you know lots of experience of being like, well, where how does this fit into a into some sense of a of rigor, you know, some sense of process? Um, I think that I just see it as perfectly compatible with agile. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what you have is a story, which is a user story, which is kind of an invitation to have a conversation. And that's a great way to set up a conversation between someone that knows a lot about the business and someone that knows a lot about technology and is, you know, really trying to represent that business appropriately in a model. Um, so I think that you've already set that context for, you know, success, right? Um, I think that, uh, as far as process goes, I think most a lot of mature agile teams. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the the uh, Don Reinerson quote that the only three best pa- practices are learning, experimentation, and situational awareness. And I think that we kind of get hung up on the orthodoxy of things and maybe try to adopt things that aren't necessarily appropriate for the code bases we're working on, the businesses that we're working with. Um, but I do think that you know most successful agile teams will kind of own their own process over time. Uh, they will kind of flex. They it will be kind of become their own, and they'll pick the things that work for them and with their values. You know, so I think like 
if you value just kind of simple design and like moving things forward, something like DDD works works perfectly and without really any kind of stress on the process or your process. Um, if you value things like cleverness and and um, you know inventing things um, that are proprietary and stuff like that and XML, <laughs> then I don't know that DDD is necessarily the best. Um, approach. Uh, and there's, of course, a value judgment in uh, my description of the latter set of values. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm rambling. Does that make I, – I think it works fine with Agile. I think it mm-hmm. works great with XP, which XP was kind of comes from the whole, you know, object-oriented bigotry kind of perspective, right? You know, or we're going to just go straight up OO. I mean, they're small talkers that invented XP, right? Right. Um, and I think that uh, DDD works great in the OO paradigm. Um, I I do kind of look at it as, you know, Eric talks about uh, crunching knowledge in the models and that when you have these aha moments about understanding what goes on with the business, that could happen independently of a user story and you might find some difficulty there. But I think that pragmatic agilists don't have a problem with, you know, bringing some kind of design change into a backlog, especially in a high trust environment where your customers, your product owners, your product managers know that you've proven that what you make good decisions about product, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that, I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I like low fi process. I mean, that's just kind of, I think what I've seen work and, and I've done kind of the agile coach thing and that's kind of where um, I tend to steer teams toward um, yeah, that was don't. that was kind of one of um, one of I guess I I don't know if I call it complaints, but just getting into DDD this week, and you know I I like looked over four documents and stuff, and I I guess I felt like I had just barely gone down the rabbit hole, <laughs> you know that it's kind of it's kind of deep, <laughs> you know, and there's a lot in there and stuff, and that that it's not something you can just kind of casually get into. You have to work your way down, you know. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a good starting point? I mean, is, is the book the best place to start, or are there other places where you can kind of get your feet wet and really get a handle on what DDD is about? Um, I, I, you know, I hate to, to, to kind of self-remote, but I think the MSDN article I wrote isn't bad. Um, I think it's a pretty good primer, and you're talking 4,000 words versus, you know, 60 50 or something crazy, right? Uh-huh. So that would should have less at least let you kind of, hey, is this something I might be interested in? Um, and there's a, there are a number of links we'll put in there. Anything that that for me is going to be short, pretty short, um, quick. Um, there's a QCon book uh, that gives you some of the primer stuff, and it's it's fairly short. Um, as far as evaluating, is it something you should learn? If you're out of books, just read this book. You know, just you know, if you, <laughs> I'm a reader, so I, I, you know, come on, you know, just suck it up this and do out it. Out of books, yeah, I was going to yeah, say, exactly, right? <laughs> if the books on your shelf don't, if yeah, if you're sick of the books you're currently reading, um, pick this one up. Why not add another one to the rotation? Hey, uh, right. I'll give you some more in the uh, at the picks portion, right? But um. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I check out that MSN article. I'm pretty happy with the way it turned out, and uh, there are some issues as far as how much effort they put in, in into editing that article. But it gives you the gist, and you can read it, you know, pretty pretty quickly, right? You can read it in one sitting, one yep. very short sitting. So, 
Um, beyond that, I can't really uh, suggest anything. I mean, I, perhaps start with the Amazon comments, see what's going on there. Um, I know people that have bothered to read it uh, and have gotten through it um, kind of come out somewhat changed or with a, a, a set of insights. So I think the the value is there you know, as far as reading it. You're going to get a couple ways of talking about things or a couple of uh, – you know, affirmations, or you're going to get a couple new ideas to try out. Um, like James said, like maybe even in the small with like your active record stuff. So I think the value will be there for pretty much anyone reading it. Um, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can check it out yourself. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Is there anything else we want to add before we get into the picks? I've got a, I've got a quick question. Okay. Um, there's, there's a concern, I think a probably warranted concern that I've heard a lot that, uh, when somebody reads a book like that, whether it's whether it's DDD or or maybe the Growing Object Oriented Software book, or or really any of these books uh, on particularly books that define some kind of pattern language, that they will then go absolutely nuts and try to sort of you know they'll they'll pick a few patterns out of the book and then uh, squeeze everything they see into those those few patterns. And a lot of a, a lot of the uh, the pushback that I see against uh, patterns and uh, you know classic OO principles is based on bad experiences with somebody doing something like that, or bad experiences you know with the 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 uh, person themselves having having made that mistake in the past. Um, do you have any like advice about how to incorporate DDD principles into your life without uh, without falling into that? Um, I would say drink the Kool Aid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it, man. Um, mm, cherry flavor. <laughs> I think uh, there's an awful desire when you read something, especially that's something as ambitious as DDD. Um, I know I had when I read. Uh, uh, Martin Fowler's Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture, I immediately started writing my own um, ORM. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was kind of, I would say, in a sandbox type environment. You know, I was just doing it as a spike on my own time. It's a lot more freeing than having to do it like when you're under the gun and you're uh, accountable for uh, delivery. Um, I think that spiking is a great, or just kind of doing like a charrette or a little sketch on your own. Is a, is a wonderful way to learn it and to see how it's applied. I think there's an awful desire to want to apply it once you've kind of got that merit badge of getting through the book, right? But um, I think, yeah, be pragmatic about where you apply it. I think you'd be dangerous and damaging potentially to your career if you apply it in the wrong place at work. Uh, I think if you um, – I also think like take some of the small stuff and see where you can apply it. Like what Charles said I think is a really great – Approach. Be pragmatic and say, well, you know, I can apply that notion of intention revealing interfaces to my, you know, to creating um, class methods and my active record models. Right? That's a small step that maybe, and there'll be a number of things in that book where you can see, well, how can I apply this in a small to what I already have? Um, I also kind of think, you know, I'm now 36, so I'm past the demographic of brand loyalty. Right. And I, I kind of just I'm kind of skeptical and of everything. And, you know, but I think kind of just being, you know, take that excitement and, you know, definitely practice it because that's how we become good at things is we uh, we practice them. And we do them a bunch of times and we, we do sometimes fail and figure out where that doesn't fit. So I think practice is a really important thing. But also I'm not saying, you know, the bitter man rots from within. You don't want to be all jaded and, you know, cranky and old man about it. But. Um, I do kind of think 
take things with a grain of salt, look at it, and really evaluate, is this something that, you know, I should be super excited about, you know. Um, is this whatever. giving me insights or is this adding process for process yeah. sake? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm getting all life coachy here, but, um, you know, I just think, I, I think you, you got to kind of put everything in its place. You know, I think pragmatism is a, is a very important skill and it's a skill like anything else. You know, it's something that you consciously bring to bear on the situation. It's not just that you've read the pragmatic programmer and now you're pragmatic. Um, you, you, it's, it's a way of life that I think is pretty valuable or it's a, it's a value that's well valuable, right. In software developments, kind of picking the right things, you know, picking the right tool for the job. All right. Group hug everybody. Uh, (laughs) Ah, I don't know. I mean, if that's unsatisfying, but I think that's, there is going to be an intense desire to want to apply these patterns. And I think Avi, the way I kind of, your question read to me was that, you know, um, how do you avoid that, you know, that pitfall? And I think that it's focus on some of the small things that you can apply to existing solutions. And then when, if you do, if you do really want to practice this thing, applying it, do it on side projects, personal projects where the risk is minimal, right? You know, I think that do a sample application, check out, go look for some sample applications, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. All right. Sounds good. Um, did we warn you about picks, David? Yes. I'm I'm okay. I'm a listener, so I'm I'm aware. Okay, good deal. Um, James, why don't you start us off with picks? Okay, I don't have anything big because I've been sick and I can't talk for very long without having to mute so I can cough again. Um, but I did do a speech uh, uh, last week uh, on math literacy in the U.S. and I mentioned I was going to do it on Twitter and. Uh, some people asked me if the slides would be online, and they are online. So uh, if that kind of thing interests you, I gave the talk to the local atheist group. So it does have some kind of skepticism in it and stuff like that, but I don't think it's very hardcore. Uh, still, if that kind of thing bothers you, you might want to uh, skip it. But uh, mostly it's a look at uh, where we are in math and what kind of things can we do to get better at math and uh, that kind of thing. So. Uh, look through those slides if that kind of thing interests you. That's it. Cool. Avdi, what are your picks? All right. So I had another uh, uh, another of those look around the desk and find something I haven't picked yet. Days <laughs> and uh, uh, to my surprise, I, I I have not picked this book yet. So uh, one of my absolute most essential Ruby books is the Ruby Way Second Edition by Hal Fulton, and it just it comes off the uh, it comes off the shelf very very regularly when I want to look up something obscure. Uh, like uh, yesterday, I was looking up uh, more information about the Ruby standard conversion pro- protocols, uh, like 2s versus 2 stir and stuff like that. And uh, it's just it's a, such a great resource. Um, for a non-coding pick, I don't think I've picked these before. Um, there are these Twitter accounts that are basically they're they're like live tweeting World War II. So it's just like shifted back in time, um, you know, a certain number of decades. And uh, and there's there's one which is uh, which is like uh, world real time World War II or something like that. I'll I'll get the link in the show notes. And there's another one uh, which is from a uh, a woman's. Uh, perspective who's you know uh like on the home front called uh, rosie's world war ii and uh it's just uh, it's fascinating stuff awesome yeah yeah let's make sure we get those in the show notes all right i'll go ahead and uh jump in here next um 
So one pick that um, I've, I've really been enjoying lately, it's an application for the Mac. Um, it's in the Mac App Store. It's called Daily Sudoku. Um, just something that I, I really have been, if I just need to sit down and just, you know, kind of unwind or if I need to distract myself because I'm I'm facing some decision that, you know, I don't want to make and I don't want to burn up a ton of willpower trying to, you know, to make the right decision, then I'll actually just take a break and do a Sudoku or a, a crossword puzzle or something, something that, that takes enough brain power to where I can't focus on it and my problem at the same time. And uh, that that's a good way to break things up. And the thing that I really like about it beyond the fact that you can just play Sudoku on your machine is that it has various difficulty levels. And as you get into the more difficult levels, then it actually, you can, you can use their hints feature. And um, the hints feature actually then will coach you through some of the more advanced Sudoku solving um, techniques. Um, so you'll get to the point where you don't have any way of solving it just by looking at rows and columns and, you know, maybe using some of the simpler techniques that are easy to identify. And um, and so I've, I've been enjoying that. And it actually links you to a Sudoku wiki that explains some of them. Um, not very well in some cases, but it does explain them. Um, the other pick that I have is Handlebars.js. Um, and uh, the thing that I like about Handlebars is that it, um, it it does pretty much everything that I need it to do. So you can, uh, you can put some like really basic, um, I guess they're block expressions. Is, is what they call them, um, but it's it's kind of logicless templates is is the whole idea, and so you you basically just uh, give it a binding, and then you render the template with that binding, and then it will um, it'll call all of the different uh, what you call all the different um, functions on the object that you put in there. So um, I really really like it. Um, it's written by Yehuda Katz. And, uh, and friends. And so anyway, uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, David, what are your picks? Um, all right. My first pick, I've got two that kind of go together. One's developer and one's not. Um, the first one is hammock driven development, which is a talk by Rich Hickey, uh, who invented uh, closure He's the closure guy. And this whole approach is that, um, you want to prepare for a kind of hard problem, state it, you know, figure out what you know about it, what you don't know, etc. And then get in a hammock and chill out and then um, let the inspiration come, you know. Uh, so the hammock could be any kind of thing that chills you out. Just get away from it for a bit and then come back and evaluate. And it's his process for kind of developing things. And I think it's just a neat life hacky kind of thing. Um, my second pick is an actual hammock. Um, it's the Xped Ergo Hammock Combi. I just got this. It's a backpacking hammock, but you can use it in any kind of situation. And if you're like a gear nerd, uh, you'll love this thing. It's got a huge tarp. It it uses a suspension bridge technology to kind of suspend you at 45 degree angles from the uh, the main line of the hammock that um, connects to two trees. Uh, it's three pounds, super light, and it gets you off the ground. I hate sleeping on the ground, but I love um, backpacking and hiking, camping, stuff like that. So. Hammock-driven development and the Xped Ergo hammock combi for your hammock-driven development in nature. That's insanely cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Pretty fun thing. That's awesome. Uh, I, I just looked at the picture that you, because uh, you posted a link, and it looks really comfortable, too. <laughs> so It's um, not, I wouldn't say it's good for, I'm, you know, I'm 5'10", 5'11", so I would, for big 
dudes, it probably is going to be a little short, but if you're medium sized individual, um, then it, I think it's a great, great option. So, so it fits you pretty well. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It fits okay. me great. Yeah. I just didn't know if you thought of yourself as a big dude. Something no, like no, no, no. I'm, I'm medium sized. Okay. All right. So, um, a few announcements. If you are, if you haven't signed up yet, you can go to rubyrogues.com and sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay. Um, that's our little mailing list where we discuss the show and upcoming episodes and things like that. Um, definitely worth it. it. You know, you can just donate 10 bucks a year and you know, we're, we're just, uh, we're splitting that money up. So it goes to all of the different rogues. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also want to thank our sponsors. The other thing that I want to bring up is our book club. We are going to be reading growing object oriented software guided by tests. And we'll be talking to the authors sometime in August. I'm still pinning that down, but it will be in August. And um, is there anything else that I need to bring up before we wrap this up? All right. Well, then uh, we'll go ahead and end the show. We'll catch you all next week. Well, maybe not next week. Next week's the 4th of July. Um, But uh, if not next week, then in two weeks. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. Really appreciate it.